Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to our text this morning, which is the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 16. I'll be reading verses 10 through 13. This is the fifth of our six vision plan commitments. As you know, over a year ago, we put together a team who prayed through what the Lord would have us do as we anticipate debt freedom in just about three or four months. And uh, we made some commitments through that that we're bringing to the church. There were commitments of the church uh, to the people, commitment of the people to the church. And today's commitment is faithful stewardship. And as we'll see today, that works in both directions, from the church to the people and from the people to the church, ultimately to the glory of God. Now, we make no apology at First Baptist Keller that we teach and believe here that all of life is a stewardship. A steward is simply a manager of that which rightly belongs to another. Of course, the Bible says that everything belongs to the Lord. Because after all, he is the creator, and the creator makes claim to that which he has created. Deuteronomy 10, 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and highest heaven, the earth and all that is in it. Psalm 89, 11, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains you have founded them. Genesis 14, 19, He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I could go on and on. I have dozens of verses that say the same thing, that God owns everything. Well, if God own every, owns, owns everything, that means we own nothing because there's nothing left to own if God owns everything. So that makes us stewards, managers. God in His sovereignty places blessings, material and spiritual, into our lives, and He holds us accountable for those. Not only are stewards somebody who manages property, they are people who will give an account for the management. And that really is the context of Luke chapter 16. Jesus loved to teach through stories called parables. And about a third of his 40 parables had to do with stewardship and money. One of those is found here in Luke 16. I won't take time to read the parable, but it's about a manager who managed property that, that belonged to an absentee owner, that absentee owner, of course, being God, who calls him into account for how he managed that property. Now, the summation of that parable is our text this morning, Luke 16, 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of witches and others, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now the Bible has a lot to say about accountability. Probably the most famous in the New Testament says it's appointed to every man once to die and then to be judged. That word judgment, accountability are really synonyms. It means to, to give an accounting of your life. Now, God is not only our creator, He is our judge. He's the one 
to whom we will give this accounting. Well, we don't have to worry about the integrity of the judge, do we? Now, if you've ever stood before a judge, either in a civil hearing or a legal matter, first thing you want to know about that case is who's the judge? Because every judge has a reputation. Well, God's reputation is that he is good and righteous and he always does what is right. There are many times God judges in the Bible. The first of which is Adam and Eve. They disobeyed him. He judged them by casting them out of the garden. Some generations later, all the earth was full of violence and sin. He judged all flesh by sending a worldwide flood. After the flood, he judged humanity at the Tower of Babel and dispersed them to the four corners of the earth. But in the New Testament context, when we talk about judgment or judgments, plural, we're usually referring to one of two events yet to be in the future. The first is what we call the great white throne of judgment. The book of Revelation says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the seas gave up their dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now that's a frightening scene. But Christians don't have to fear the great white throne of judgment. Because the Lord Jesus took our punishment for our sins on the cross. And through His substitutionary atonement and His glorious resurrection, we need not fear. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation, no eternal judgment for those who are in Christ. But there is another judgment the Bible speaks of that does affect Christians. And that's the one I want to address today. And that's what we call the Bema Seat Judgment or the Judgment Seat of Christ. It's called that because of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to that which he has done, either good or bad. And you say, Pastor, I, I thought you teach grace. You always say that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. It's not of works. How can we be rewarded if our salvation is based on grace? Well, you are listening closely. You're to be commended. Salvation, justification is by grace, but God does reward His saints with what the Bible calls crowns. And there are a number of crowns the Bible mentions, the crown of life, the crown of, of righteousness. Now we know what's going to happen when we receive those crowns. We're simply going to give them back to Jesus and cast them at His feet. But there will be a distribution of rewards in heaven. And so really that's what our text is about. It's about stewardship. It's about rewards. And, and so this absentee landowner calls this manager up short because he had been poorly managing his property. He's about to fire him. And so since he's about to get fired, this crooked steward, this manager, goes to those who owed his master money and said, take a big discount here. You don't really owe that much. Now why did he do that? Because he knows when he gets fired he's not going to have a source of income. And these guys will take care of him after he's fired. Well, the surprising ending of that story is that Jesus says, the master, when he came to fire the crooked manager, commended him 
for his shrewdness because he looked to the future and saw that he needed to make provisions of it. Now, Jesus is not commending being a crooked manager. He's saying that if a crooked manager makes provisions for the future, how much so God's people ought to make provisions for the future. And so there's three points that I want to make as it relates to making provisions for our future. And the first is we have to understand that there are two types of wealth. Jesus calls one kind of wealth unrighteous wealth and the other kind of wealth true riches. Now, why would Jesus call wealth unrighteous? We know that money, real estate, 401ks are not in of themselves inherently good or bad. They are morally neutral. We can use money to help the poor. We can use money to to hurt people. He calls it unrighteous wealth because it is the currency of an unrighteous culture. Remember what we said a few weeks ago that we live in a dark and dangerous world and in a world that is corrupt. That's why Jesus says the job of the church is to be salt and light. Salt stops or prevents corruption and light exposes darkness. And so because we live in that dark and dangerous world and that corrupt world, Jesus calls the currency of that world unrighteous. And and so he says, here's the thing about unrighteous wealth. That is the wealth of this world. It's, for one, temporary. Can't take it with you, right? And, and, you, and you can't. In fact, it's temporary in this life because no matter how much you have, it is subject to theft, loss, decay, depreciation. And so that's why Paul told the young pastor Timothy to teach those who are wealthy with this unrighteous kind of wealth not to trust in the deceitfulness of riches. Now, how can wealth be deceitful? I think it's because... This world's wealth makes promises that it cannot keep. Now, years ago, our federal government started a new program to help our senior adults, and it's called Social what? Security. Now, we're finding out there's not a lot of security in Social Security, but we make ourselves feel better by using words like security and guaranteed. You go to the bank, you open up a bank account, they'll say it's FDIC guaranteed. If the bank goes under, the federal government will restore you, make you whole. Well, well, the point is that there's nothing in this life that's guaranteed. There's nothing in this life that's secure except for the fact that Peter says one day it's going to melt with fervent heat and be gone forever. So why would we invest heavily in something that's temporary and deceitful and depreciates and ultimately winds up at zero? So Jesus says there's another kind of wealth, and he calls it true riches. These are, I take it, eternal rewards, crowns, any way you want to call it. Matthew 6.20, Jesus says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, or where thieves don't break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, true riches are superior to earthly riches because they are permanent. Just as heaven is eternal, our rewards are eternal. And they are God-given and guaranteed. Peter indicates that our heavenly inheritance is guaranteed and guarded over by God. Which means the only way we could lose our heavenly inheritance is if someone overpowered God. That's not going to happen. Because by definition, our God is omnipotent. Meaning there's no one or anything more powerful than Him. So that's that's a good guarantee. And then... It is not subject to depreciation or loss. You see, no matter what you have here, 
eventually is going to deteriorate. It's going to depreciate till it's worth nothing. Whether it's land or houses or cars, it's all going away. But here's the thing in heaven, where we're outside of the presence and the curse of sin, we don't have to worry about that. Not only will our bodies not decay, the wealth and rewards we receive will never depreciate. So the point is, two types of wealth. One is obviously superior to the other. And Jesus calls the superior kind true riches. Now secondly, he says there's two kinds of stewards. Now you know one of my favorite passages is 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. The church at Corinth are squabbling about who the best preacher is, Paul or Apollos or Peter. And Paul says, look, if you want to describe preachers, here's how you do it. Two words. One, he says slave. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. Secondly, here's that word, it's steward. Managers of that which belongs to another. That's all we are. God entrusts us with a congregation or with the word for a brief time until we die or he calls us home and then someone else will take our place. And then they will have that stewardship. So he says, don't, don't put too much weight on who the preacher is. Instead, put your weight on what the word is and what the stewardship is. And so the two kinds of stewards are simply a faithful one or an unfaithful one. So, so Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4, 2, what is required of a servant but that he be found faithful, trustworthy. That's all a steward has to be, faithful or unfaithful. The question is, what separates the two? How do we determine if a steward, a manager, is faithful or unfaithful? We say, well, how much the Lord entrust him with? That's obvious. If you've got someone that's faithful, he's going to have more. If someone's unfaithful, they're not going to give him much. No, that's not it at all. In fact, here, here's what Jesus says in uh, verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Now, let me give you that in the Sanders version. If you're a crook with a little, you'll be a crook with a lot. If you're faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with a lot. That's just a very simple teaching of Scripture. So, so just because you have a lot doesn't mean you're faithful. Just because you have a little doesn't mean God doesn't trust you. So what are the areas in which we are to be faithful? Well, he says the test is with our unrighteous wealth. Verse 11, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? It's a rhetorical question. So if God entrusts you with a certain amount of material possessions in this life, and you're unfaithful with it, why in the world would you think he's going to entrust you with eternal riches? And the answer is, he's not. And so that leads us to believe that one of the ways that God measures our faithfulness for eternal rewards is how we handle material possessions. So what does the Bible say about the right handling of material possessions? Well, it says a lot, but in three categories. The first is, it matters to God how we attain wealth. Do you believe that? Do you think God cares about how we get our money? Well, I do. Exodus 20 says, thou shalt not steal. So if you attain your wealth through illegal and unethical practices, don't say the Lord's doing that. He didn't want any part of that. He says, don't covet what belongs to another. So if you manipulate the system, even if it is technically legal, to take away from someone what you want, don't say that's the Lord blessing you. The Lord cares how you get money. By the way, there's a very simple way, primarily, that God has given us how we attain wealth. But it's a four-letter word. Work. Work. 
God's economy and his economic system is very simple. He gives us health, gives us strong bodies and strong minds so that we may use those bodies and minds to work hard so that he may bless us with that which we need. We say, Pastor, I thought work was a curse of the fall of man. No, it wasn't. Adam and Eve had work to do before sin ever entered the world. Work's a good thing. Work teaches us um, to, to have value. Work teaches us um, that the Lord is a rewarder of those who trust in Him. Work's a good thing. And the primary way God blesses us is through work. And then the second thing, not only how we attain it, but what we do with it once we have it. Do you know that the very first thing the Bible teaches about what we should do with our wealth? Take care of your family. If you don't take care of your family, the Bible says you're worse than an unbeliever. And then, if you have more than you need to take care of your family, you assist the less fortunate. But then that all comes under the context of investing that wealth in the kingdom of God. Now what does it mean to invest in the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus says, lay not up treasure on earth, but in heaven. And the way we lay up treasure on earth is investing it in what God's doing in His eternal redemptive plan. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And then thirdly, there's the category of our attitude towards it. God says a lot about our attitude towards money in His Word. He says, first of all, don't love it because it will not love you back, right? Don't love money. Don't make it a God. Hold it loosely. What I mean by that, I told you a couple weeks ago, we need to set our default setting to yes rather than no. That is true in our money. So if your, your default setting is no, that means you're holding your money tightly. And if the Lord is going to get it, he's going to have to pry your hands open. And that is going to be painful. Why not just hold it loosely? Have your default setting to yes, that when the opportunity comes, you give as a, a cheerful giver would. Be generous with it. So how we attain it, what we do with it, our attitude towards it. Now thirdly and finally, there's two types of wealth, there's two kinds of stewards, but there's two sorts of masters. Now God in His Word often calls His people to crisis moments. That is a place in time where they have to make a decision, go one way or the other. Don't be like Yogi Bear. He said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. That doesn't tell us anything. The Bible says when you come to a crisis moment, choose wisely. Elijah on Mount Carmel called the nation of Israel together. He says, if God be God, serve Him. But if Baal be God, serve Him. Stop limping along between the two. Joshua, as he stood ready to take God's people into the promised land, said, choose you this day who you'll serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Well, Jesus here in Luke 16 brings us to a crisis moment. He says, make a choice. And the choice here is between masters, because he says you cannot serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other, or vice versa. We know that God will not share his glory with another. And so he says, choose between the things of this world or the things of heaven. And he's, of course, encouraging us to choose God rather than money. And I'm here today to plead with you to choose God as your master and not your possessions. Here's why. Because money makes a poor master. It's a liar. Remember, it's deceitful. Makes promises it cannot keep. It's not eternal. It's temporary, and it goes away and often doesn't come back. Now, you compare that to God. Does God ever make a promise he doesn't keep? Does God ever lie? 
Can God be trusted? Of course he can. He's true and faithful and kind and merciful and long-suffering. That's the God that we serve. And he makes a much better God, a much better master than anything this world has to offer. Now, what in the world does that have to do with the vision plan or First Baptist Keller? Well, I think a lot. Because from the very beginning, we have said that the vision plan process is an exercise in stewardship above everything else. Because all of life is a stewardship. That includes our future at First Baptist Keller. And as we think about stewardship, I view it as a two-sided coin. The first side is individual stewardship. Because the church is nothing more than the component parts, individual Christians come together under their head, Christ. And so there's an element of individual stewardship. Every individual in this church will one day stand before the Lord and give an account of their life, how they spent their time, how they spent their thought life, how they spent their money. And then there is an element of corporate stewardship. In Revelation, Jesus calls upon seven individual churches to accountability. And where they were lacking, he rebuked them. And when they were doing well, he commended them. And so there is, in some way, accountability both individually and corporately. And so you're thinking, okay, here comes the tithing pitch. Well, you wait a long time for that. Because I've been here 18 years, I've never preached a sermon on tithing. I'm not going to start, because I believe the Bible teaches grace giving. But here's the caveat to that. Grace always requires more than law. Now, I, I practice tithing. I have since I was 10 years old. When I was about 10, my brother and I started mowing a couple of yards. And uh, I remember what we made, $16 a week between us. <laughs> and, and we tithed on that. Why? Our parents taught us to. Parents, there's no greater lesson you can teach your children than God can be trusted with your money, with your life, with your time. Now, the reason I tithe is not because I feel if I don't, my car's going to break down or the stock market's going to crash. It's because I view it like training wheels. My son is six years old. He's sitting right here on the front. He's got a bicycle. And it's time for him to take the training wheels off. Right, buddy? <laughs> but he's been a little resistant to that because he's become dependent on it, right? So what training wheels do, they get you up and going. And they help you to learn to balance. And then one day, you take those training wheels off and then you can go to great distances. Now, it's cute when a four or five-year-old has training wheels. But when your 19-year-old has training wheels, you've got a problem. And so there comes a point where you say, I, I've got to go beyond this. And, and that's the way I view tithing. Nothing wrong with tithing. It has helped our family get our balance and our bearings. And, but, but the Lord doesn't want us to stop there. He wants us to trust him with all of our money, not just the first 10% of that. And so that brings me to the second side of that coin, which is our, our corporate stewardship in the life of the church. And so that works both ways too. Yes, we're going to give an account to the Lord, but yes, we also have to be faithful in our accounting to the membership. So here's how we do it at First Baptist Keller. If you didn't know, take notes on this, okay? Somebody ever ask you how they handle money at First Baptist, I'm about to tell you. Okay, in March of every year, we put together our budget. Every pastor submits their ministry area's budget. 
We collect those and we put together a budget committee based up of members like, like you. And they review those budgets. They make recommendations. They make amendments. And then they bring it forward to the church family. And we vote on it. And we approve the budget every year. And that becomes the fence that we expect the Lord in the past, he's blessed us with this similar amount. We're expecting that in the future, and we need to be good stewards of it. And here's how we plan to do that. Now, then it becomes the purview of the people. Either you give to that budget or you don't. It's a faith exercise, really. And then the group that's responsible for managing that, first of all, is the finance committee. A group of 10 or 12 individuals who are members, every Wednesday night, they meet up on a third floor in a conference room, and they manage the finances of the church. Every dollar that is spent in this congregation goes through that committee. There, there are 10 to 12 sets of eyes on every dollar that is spent here. And by the way, those meetings are open to any member. We don't have closed door meetings here. Why do we do that? Because it's the Lord's money, not ours. And nothing can disrupt the unity of the church quicker than the mishandling of money. And so, by the way, that is a slow process. It takes an hour or two every week. And, and when I tell my pastor's friends that's how we do that, they say, are you crazy? That takes forever to do that. Yes, it does, but well worth it. Because in the 18 years I've been here, I don't know about before, I've never heard one question that money wasn't rightly spent. That's worth a lot. And that's owing also to our ladies in the office who do such a good job, Charlene Bashirs and, and the others. And then we bring in an outside accounting firm every year and do an external audit. And do you know what they say every year? We could not find one entry that was wrong. Our ladies view it as a ministry. They do their work unto the Lord and, and not in, unto men. Why, why do I say that? It's because we want to model as a congregation to you, the families of the church, how to handle your finances. One, you need to be transparent and open and honest. Trustworthy. And then there's some other words I'd like to add with how we're asking the Lord to help us as we move forward and as we become debt-free. And the word right at the top of the list is generous. I'm never going to badger you about tithing. I am going to call you to generosity. Because here's what our aim is. Our aim is maturity and sanctification. And when every believer makes progress in maturity and sanctification, you don't have to pry money out of their hand. You don't have to beg them to give. They can't wait to give and invest uh, in the kingdom. And so if we want our young families to be generous, we better be modeling that. And so the very first commitment of the vision plan, when we're debt free, is to give more to other people than we've ever given before. That is through church planning and through missions to our cooperative program, we're going to instantly increase those levels as a part of the vision plan. Now, now, the second is um, investing in the kingdom. So, if you are investing, there's nothing wrong with investing. I encourage you to do that. The Bible does. Your, your material possessions. I encourage you to invest in kingdom work. Because, as we've seen, it's permanent and it's guaranteed by the Lord. Now, how do you recognize kingdom work you ought to invest in? Well, it ought to line up with the Word of God. And so, I probably receive conservatively, between 200 and 300 solicitations a year. People will call me, come by the office, send me an email. Can you help our ministry? And the vast majority of these ministries are, are good and, and solid. Some not so much. 
So how do we determine which of those ministries we invest in? Well, uh, first and foremost, we have a grid. They have to be overtly Christian and overtly evangelistic. And then, we, we, before that even, we take the Word of God and say, does their doctrinal statement line up to the Word? And, and then, does it line up with our philosophy of ministry? Now, we're not saying other things that people are doing are wrong, but we're obviously going to invest in things that are closest and most dear to our heart. Because our church is like your family. There's a limited amount we have been entrusted with, and we want this to go as far as possible. And so what we're going to do, with God's help, is to model before the families of our church generosity, investing in the kingdom, and then wise management. The Bible has a lot to say about managing money. In the Old Testament it says, consider the ant, right? He, he doesn't consume everything in the good times. He puts some away. And we've learned the lesson here over the years. We need to have some reserves for the, for the leaner times. Now those need to be small because God doesn't bless a church or an individual for that matter to hoard. The Bible condemns hoarding. We're not to be a reservoir of God's blessings. We're to be a conduit, a pipeline through which His blessings go out into this community and to the world. But there are wise principles one is transparency, the other is, is saving for the future, and then the third is wisely minimizing debt. For years around here, we've been telling young people to go to this class we offer about how to get out of debt. And we say, get out of debt so you can give more to the Lord's work. Well, if we tell our young families they ought to get out of debt, our church ought to get out of debt. And so that's what we've been doing. And, and Lord willing, on April the 1st, I keep telling you, you don't want to miss it. We're going to stand here, Lord willing, and say, for the first time in 25 years, we're debt-free. With an aim to use those wise stewardship principles, not only in our individual homes, but modeling those principles as a church. Would you pray the Lord would help us do that? And would you commit in your own home to using those same principles for the Lord's glory? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for uh, your word and so practical hear people say all the time that the Bible is irrelevant, it's, it's impractical. Well, it's as relevant and practical as today's Sunday paper. Lord, we need these principles today more than ever. And so, Father, as we do anticipate debt freedom in just a few months, we recognize, Lord, that likely we're going to have more accountability than ever because you tell us to whom much is given, much is required. Lord, we want to be faithful. Faithful with a little and faithful with a lot. Because, Lord, we know ultimately all this property, all these blessings are yours and not ours. We're just temporary managers, but one day you're going to call us into accountability. And, Father, our aim and ambition, our great goal as individuals and as a church family is to hear from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Would you help us do that, Lord? Would you give us the wisdom to make wise decisions, all that would bring honor to Jesus? In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.